It's very good to share. Beer is meant for sharing. So today I have with me John Edward Knox. Um, he is an occasional writer for us here at Tory Gazette. Um, we've been friends for a while, or he has admitted to being my friend for a while. And I'm going to try and set up uh, a normal procedure of getting people to call in and, and answer some questions. And the, the first question is, um, what are you drinking, John? Right now, I'm drinking uh, Salvation by Avery Brewing Company. Comes in a, a nice bomber. For those of you who don't know what that is, it's a 22 ounce bottle standard from a lot of microbrews. And it's a Belgian style golden ale from Avery Brewing here in Colorado. That sounds delightful. I'm actually looking it up on the Google as you speak. And this looks like it's a rather complicated beer. So can can you tell us a little bit about the what's going on on that one? Well, it's uh, Belgian, so it definitely has a standard Belgian-style yeast. For those who are familiar with it, don't know what I'm talking about. For those who aren't, it's a kind of a, a richer, fruitier flavor. Uh, the yeast adds to it. It's... It's more of, um, I, I would say, uh, yeasty, but that's using a word to describe itself. So I'll just say it's got kind of a distinct, not necessarily funky farmhouse flavor, but um, more fruity overtones. It's going to be a little higher in alcohol, I think. I think this is... Um, yeah, 9% alcohol. So it's going to be lighter. Um, it's got, well, I guess the best way to describe the taste is to take a sip. So that's what I'm going to do right now. Okay. Um, definitely has fruitier flavors, more of a kind of, I wouldn't say grapefruit necessarily, but um, in that vein, more lighter, crisp flavors. And the beer is very, very see-through. Um, it's a pretty clear beer. Um, so I know you per you prefer unfiltered beers. Is This is definitely closer filter. Looking around my room, I can see everything through an amber hue. So it's kind of got a golden amber color to it kind of somewhere in the middle do, do you drink it often um unfortunately i don't drink beer too often just because i can't sit down i like to sit down and relax but this is one of my go-to beers i try and get to it um once or twice a month well that's that's a surprisingly high frequency for a bomber so i think that's a a good thing that that's yeah. a high praise for a beer yeah, um, bombers are. I don't like to rush through a beer, so I I like to have a block of time where I can sit down and enjoy it, and that's unfortunately not frequent with my schedule. Yeah, and and for individuals like you said who may not drink a whole lot of 
Bomber bottle beers, um, 22 ounces of a 9% beer is not something that you want to rush through or, <laughs> or have anything serious that you need to do afterwards. No. For, for those of you who uh, drink things like, I don't know, it's considered a – I think Sam Adams Boston Lager comes in at like 5.8 or something like that. Um, Guinness is only 5%. There's a lot of beers like Fat Tire is around 5%. So this is around a 22-ounce bottle of 9% is around 3.5 to 4 Fat Tires for alcohol. Yeah, yeah, and, and that that is a, a huge uh, wake-up call. 9% still, I mean, for a seasoned drinker like you or I, 9% is definitely reasonable. A whole bomber to yourself is definitely reasonable. But, you know, if, if you're not used to putting back a couple during the, during a shift or something, um, maybe find someone to split that beer with. Bombers are great to split because you can just split it down the middle and it's 11 ounces each. So yes, it's very good to share. Beer is meant for sharing. Yes, it is. Well, I, I am rather uh, disappointing today. I woke up on um, Friday with a incredibly, incredibly stiff neck. Um, the muscles in my neck were even kind of um, spasming from being contracted so hard and lots and lots of pain. So I've been on and off some pretty severe medication to help reduce the pain and um, and help me to slowly stretch my muscles out. So I have had very little beer for the last four days. And that includes today. I am drinking tea today. I like tea. Uh, yeah, I like tea too. So I'm drinking some, some, uh, good earth chai and that's it. There's, it tastes like chai. There's, I have no ABV. It's not in a bomber. It's in a red elephant teacup and it tastes good. I don't know um, if you're really uh, a mixed stuff in tea guy, but for days that you want a little kick to your tea, I recommend Baron Jaeger. It's a honey liqueur. It's really good with tea. I, I do like mixing things with my tea. I normally don't have or stock a plethora of liqueurs but i will definitely look into it my wife would probably be interested in something like that having that during the winter seasons in particular just consider it like uh, people put honey in their tea i'll imagine honey for adults rise before me just watching the bubbles in my beer and i'm seeing the road that i travel a road paved with heartaches and tears And I'm seeing the past that I've wasted While watching the bubbles in my beer A vision of someone who loved me Brings a long silent tear to my eyes As I think of a heart that I've broken all right, so the second question I have for you, John, is what are you reading? Now, before you actually answer that question, I know that you are reading something new, but that the thing you just finished reading 
I was actually reading part of as well. So I'm going to let you describe what you're currently reading, and then I'm going to force you to go back to the book you just finished. Okay, well, um, right now I just started. <clears throat> you might lose people from this, but I'm just going to say it because, well, Two Kingdoms. Um, I just <laughs> started Meredith Klein's Kingdom Prologue, and um, this week I'm going to have to start reading a book called, hold on, I'm going to grab it so I can get the authors. It's a book called Sacred Bond, Covenant Theology Explored by Michael Brown and Zach Keel. And um, I'm helping lead uh, a, um, a Sunday school at my church going through this book. So that means I have to start reading this as well. Um, I haven't started it yet, but there's also a, a, a book that I'm going to be reading for a little group at my church that's trying to be proactive. Um, there's a lot of things that I, I, I guess to put it bluntly, we don't like to talk about it, but I think churches are starting to have to talk about how to protect our children. And, um, I'm involved with my church and, um, a group of people who are starting to be proactive about how can we, um, find ways to, uh, protect our children in church. There's been a number of sex scandals that have uh, rocked the Protestant world recently. It's not just Rome anymore. So um, my church is trying to be very proactive about setting up a uh, a program or um, some procedures and guidelines that we can have as an institution to help uh, protect the children in the church and also to help protect the people in the church. It's uh, kind of twofold. And um, I'd start reading that as well. So those are the three main things that I'm reading right now. That's excellent. That's a good amount of diversity in subject matter and probably readability. They're not all going to be equally easy to read or equally difficult to read. Although I cannot imagine reading Klein's book at all. I, I'm a huge, I, I, I actually am a fan of Klein. I've, I've read and recommended quite a few books that either subtly or um, full-heartedly endorse Klein's look at, I think, uh, the book of Deuteronomy. and, and um, I think that's uh, Treaty of the Great King. Is that the name of the book? I don't know what I don't know what the book is, but um, there's still quite a few people interested in that, and there's still a lot of individuals who have never even heard Klein out on covenant theology in general. So, yeah, Klein um, Klein comes with a lot of baggage. I know I've been to um, Reformed Forum, and you got a guy like Lane Tipton who's very sympathetic to Klein, but he's not an Escondido. Kleinian, and he's, well, not jumping too far ahead, but there's, for those who are in the Reformed know, there's kind of a war going on in the OPC over republication, which is one of the children that Klein brought into the discussion. And um, unfortunately, I think Meredith Klein is a name that brings baggage and people hear the name and they grow fangs or they just run to defend his students. And one of the things that Lane Tipton is doing is trying to um, let us read Klein 
for Klein's sake and and with no presuppositions, as little presuppositions as possible. Hear him out. Don't listen to his students. Don't listen to the the uh, detractors. Listen to the man and um, whatever fruit there is there, take it. So I don't know if that's actually going to be, uh, I guess, productive, but that's what a guy like Lane Tipton is doing. But you're right that Meredith Klein is um, kind of a name that brings up controversy and hostility, unfortunately. Yes, and the other individual that you and I were both reading the same book at the same time you finished, I haven't because I got distracted by other books, was Cornelius Van Til. Uh, was it the Common Grace in the Gospel? I believe was the is the title to that one, and he's got a similar response to his name and presuppositional apologetics, where people either love him or absolutely hate him and his disciples. I'm going to let you talk first about this book, just some of the things that you've gathered from it since you've actually finished it. I'm more than halfway through, but I haven't gotten the the full scope yet. So I'm going to let you you talk first. All right. Well, um, for those who aren't familiar, it's more of a, a compilation of I guess, letters and essays that he's written um, interacting with different people. And I have a really, really old school copy from Presbyterian and Reform that's from 1971, and it's very old and plain. And I believe you have the new edition that was uh, edited and compiled and kind of polished up by K. Scott Oliphant. Yes, I do. Um, So in that, I... I'll admit I went into Klein, <laughs> sorry, slip. I went into Van Til. Um, a little leery, I guess, is the best way to put it, because I've interacted with a lot of self-confessed Van Tilians that seem to push the antithesis so far that there's not much room for um, common grace. And... Funny enough, Van Til's book, Common Grace in the Gospel, he gets into it. Um, so I, there's a lot of background. I don't really want to get into the background of the doctrine of common grace. There's a number of people who don't believe common grace exists, but Van Til assumes that it does. He also assumes that um, a lot of the proponents of common grace are left to have too much autonomy and that they are still viewing that the unbeliever is capable of too much in his estimation. And um, Van Til won me over in the book. I'm more willing to hear Van Til now than I was before. Um, I think a lot of his students really went too far. One of the things that uh, Van Til, a distinction that he makes all the way through the book with um, the, the letter. He has a response to um, Dr. Mazelink in chapter six, and it's kind of a, a clarification of what people thought Van Til was saying. And he's very adamant that he's dividing the, the, the ethical and the um, 
uh, metaphysical. And by that, I mean that when he's dealing with the metaphysical reality of the universe, the, the tangible, um, the things that we can observe and see through creation, metaphysically, he believes that the believer and unbeliever have all things in common. That's a, that's his words. I'm trying to find the quote as I go, but ethically that the believer and unbeliever have nothing in common. Um, I'm still wrestling with the implications and the depth of what he, what he means by that. He's not, I think you would agree. It's not a, a book that you just run through. It's slow going and, and a lot of meditation it is one of the reasons why an individual like Van Til gets himself a reputation outside of this, their massive intellectual capabilities are the um, extremes at which they sometimes speak. And there are a lot of statements by Van Til that will just kind of take you off your feet if you're not paying enough attention. And I don't have my copy in front of me. It's downstairs with my kids who are, doing some kind of pretzel chocolate thing for their son, their choir class tonight. And um, there he makes really grand statements about how, you know, because all were in Adam, there's this element of God's favor upon everybody. And that because all are in Adam post fall, there's an element of God's disfavor upon everybody. And he makes some, some statements about, um, believers, non-believers, elect, non-elect, use whatever distinction you you kind of want to use. Um, one of it looking from eternity, one of it looking from in history. And he makes some really strong statements about their commonality and their their differences that I think if you're not able to stick with him through some of the sludging, can can really take you back. Yeah. Um one of the things that he he talks about is that in a sense all people believer and unbeliever are under well-being and grace of god and that god bestows blessings on all and in some sense all people believers and unbelievers are under the displeasure of god when they sin and he's one of the things that won me over is that he's not willing to be limited by um, the nice, neat, logical categories that we have, that a person who uh, we, we like to discuss that a person can't be under wrath and grace at the same time. And Van Til says, why not? The scriptures speak of both. They speak of believers being under wrath in a sense when they're being chastised because of their sin. And they speak of unbelievers who are children of wrath being under grace in some sense when they are gifted life and breath and uh, success and uh, wisdom even um, in, in the by their heavenly father whom they reject. But he views common grace, not only with those blessings, but also as a preservative nature. I, I, I would, I think it's safe to say that God keeps them from being as wicked as they would be. And he makes the unbeliever inconsistent in their worldview to the fact that they can actually do good, relatively speaking, um, his words. 
Yes, those are those were some of the most interesting elements of the writing so far, particularly understanding he's a defendant of common grace. And I think he's actually a defendant of a very strong doctrine of common grace. And, and I've, I've said that to people in the past and they've kind of looked at me strange and funny because you you don't typically associate Van Til or any of his subsequent students as purveyors of, of grace or common grace. Um, but to the extent that he actually builds off of, of some of the Dutch Reformed tradition before him and saying that God even uses it to, like you said, make their worldview um, inconsistent with itself to preserve humanity, you don't come away with this really awful feeling that unless someone is constantly and consistently Ventilian, they're... they're you know, of no use to society, which is sometimes how it feels when you're talking to someone who is a proponent of presuppositionalism. Unless you agree with them and unless you agree with their interpretation of the scriptures and all of these things, you're rather useless to society. And I don't, I don't hear that from Van Til. I definitely don't, I definitely am not completely come around to understanding his understanding of ethics as you said, uh, as he is being a defendant of common grace, he wants to do it in his mind the most biblical way. And so he's, he throws some barbs at other attempts to describe common grace, to give almost too much of a, a space where the believer and the unbeliever have things in common, like this neutral area that is shared by the believer and the unbeliever. And I think you've already commented on it that Van Til does not think that ethics is in that area. There is no shared area there for believers and unbelievers. And I think that's an interesting, um, an interesting little sidebar that kind of is constantly there as he's pushing this really strong common grace, it's not a common ethic. It's, it's true. I mean, the best way to put it is that I think, as I'm understanding it now, and by all means, um, for those who are much more versed in Van Til than I am, um, I'm not saying this dogmatically. I'm saying this is a student who's learning. I think that paradox is going to be crucial to understand Van Til and that you have to have the understanding that one of his presuppositions is that the mind of God and the logic of God is not going to be the logic of finite man. And so when we say you can't be under wrath and grace at the same time, Van Til would say, um, humanly speaking, Maybe we can't show someone wrath and grace at the same time, but God, who is above, who is the fount from which all things come from, he is not bound by our, our limits and our finitude. And that, um, so he can make statements that seem contradictory, and he would say that they're contradictory to natural man. Like, um, in short, they, believers and unbelievers, have the, metaph- the metaphysical situation in common. Metaphysically, both parties have all things in common, while epistemologically, they have nothing in common. 
he says that in the beginning in his introduction and later he develops it with more of a he uses the term ethically they have nothing in common that there is this antithesis that runs through man but it's it's not as he put in uh, his letter an absolute antithesis in the sense that it affects everything absolutely he the reason why I was hesitant with Van Til is I see some of his students that push the antithesis to where no neutrality means absolutely no neutrality at all, and that there's an antithesis between everything in the believer and everything in the unbeliever. And for Van Til, that's true if you're speaking of an ethical understanding of the world. It is not true if you're speaking of metaphysics. If you're speaking of... Um, the, the sciences and, well, to put it frankly, believers can have beautiful art. They can have very intricate uh, understandings of science in the world. And Van Til would say, that's true. They are opposed to God and opposed to Christ and that the antithesis runs through, but they, because of common grace, are inconsistent and that we can learn from them and that metaphysically, we're dealing with the same things as they are. We're dealing with the physical world, and we're dealing with laws that you can learn about through through study and through application of our intellect, and that these things we have all in common metaphysically, and that there's... Um, he, he's not afraid to say it's a... It's, it's more complex than our logical categories. It's not one or the other. It's a both and. You've got a long way to get to a destination.